Welcome to the Raindrop Corner Podcast, a chill place where creatives and real-life superheroes converge to chat it up about cool things. And I'm your host, Kay. And without further ado, here's an ode to our guest. Dear Storyteller, you cultivate the greatest songs. You see, I am watching ideas, dreams, aspirations, and goals drip from your mind as the ink would from a pen, but you click-clack, click-clack on your keyboard, cultivating the most wondrous of all the tales. You see, a weaver of aberrance, a weaver of dreams, and yet you teach stories of old while sitting home by the fire or inside of it, cultivating these stories that are iterations, fractals of your mind, experiences, and external stimuli that happen to cultivate into that of a singular narrative. We are awed. We are in wonder at your glory, at the glory that you create in the form of fictional characters that aren't so fictional at all. And yet they are your gifts to the world. And here we are happily receiving them. You see, stories are as old as the mountains are high and as wide as the rivers are flowing that flow through the land, that flow through the veins of your soul, that grace us with more and more words, words that distill and wrap around the body, spinning it into some sort of atrophy and yet I am taken into the depths of the greatest tale that I've ever heard in the form of everything that you dare to give the world. Dear storyteller, I see you, I hear you. I am captivated by the marvel that you grace the world with. Kings with fine clothing, queens who are not so queenly and yet they are still just as magnificent as the finest sun ray on a sun-kissed morning. You see, there's no need for gold or silver when you have a story, for the tale becomes richer with the telling, and as long as each listener has a pair of good ears, then I have a willing mind to listen. Mind to listen to you, dear storyteller. It matters not where we dwell. It matters not where we hold our hands or the gaze in our eyes or if we can even see because we have stories. We have you, dear storyteller. You are magnificent. You are wondrous, and you are evermore one of the best humans on this planet is with me today so today we have returning guest carson t morrissey thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me i'm going to kind of condense the myriad of things that you've done you are a filmmaker you are an artist of varying degrees from performing to directing to writing you are very, very much so just surrounded in the arts. Thank you. You're welcome. But uh, how just just how are you first? I feel like before diving into it, we we're coming off of like a super heavy year. And I feel like tensions while they're still there are kind of like dulling down a little bit. How are you personally? I mean, personally, I'm doing very well. I think, you know, I like everyone. I think had a very hard time throughout 2020, especially certain parts of 2020. It was a bizarre year. You know, in some ways, it was one of the strongest years for witnessing human compassion and the length that people will go to to help each other. And on the other hand, we had the polar opposite of that. Uh, and some of the most horrifying things I think any of us have ever witnessed. It was a strange year. And I think that it led to a lot of personal change on my part because I think I, like a lot of other people, 
asked myself a lot in 2020, okay, you know, clearly life is short and everything changes and you never know what's going to happen. So who do I want to be? And I made a lot of big life changes in 2020. Nothing like shocking, nothing that wasn't, but it was like unusual or or out of left field, but like I, I went forward with a lot of things in 2020 that I was ready for. Mm-hmm. So it's weird because on one hand, it was one of the scariest years I've ever experienced for the world, but it was also a, a pretty big year for self-growth. Mm-hmm. And I hope, and I feel like it was that for a lot of people, just from people that I've talked to and things, you know, no one will say it was a good year, but everyone will say like, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I did some things for myself. You know, I had to spend a lot of time alone. So I learned, you know, I started writing again, or I started painting again, or or I didn't make any art at all, and I just relaxed for a year. I feel like I can't sum up 2020 in one sentence. I'd be really <laughs> impressed if you could. I don't, and I mean, I think that's valid, too. I, I heard a lot of that, too, and mm-hmm. felt a lot of that on my end as well. I think, too, like, it kind of taught us that it's okay to do things differently than we've been doing them, or certain things that we were doing weren't working as an artist, so as a creative, because you do create... Yeah. How did it change you creatively in terms of how you approach art? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is for the past six years, I have made a movie every year. And 2020 was the first year in six years I couldn't make anything. And that was honestly, like, I was scared about that when it started because it was just like, I I relied on that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you're an artist, your, your work what you do, you know, regardless of who sees it or how successful it is, you know, I'm no, you know, I don't have millions of people lining up to watch my movies. I don't even have thousands anymore. But just the process, just the making is what gets you through it. And to combine one of the most stressful and scary years in human history with an event that prevents you from getting together with other people and making your art. Because, you know, for me, you know, I know there are filmmakers out there who say like, oh, well, you can make a movie anytime. You can make a movie in your house with just you. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But what I get out of it is the crowd. I love getting a big group of people together and making something. So the fact that I couldn't do that was frightening. And it, it forced me to examine other outlets and to actually focus on my life, making myself happy in ways that didn't involve art. Even though I did do a lot of art. I wrote a book, I wrote a play, I wrote screenplays. But that was all secondary for Mm -hmm. the first time, I think, in like six years. It changed me creatively in that it kind of forced me to stop using art as a crutch. And to learn to just do it for the love of it again. Which is honestly not a terrible thing. I'll be completely honest. So anyone... It's a fair bet to say that if anybody knows me for anything, it's the life is strange. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I, I made What If, which is based on Life is Strange, and I made Dawn, which is based on Before the Storm. Which is a super cool Combined, video game that everybody should play. <laughs> it's, the, it's one of the best video games ever made. Also watch the movies, they're a lot of fun. Um, but truly, I mean, it. you know, What If has 500,000 views on YouTube, which is more than I have ever gotten for anything. And when that happened, it felt like if I don't capitalize on you know, if I, don't, if I don't try to make something out of this, then I'm a failure, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you reach 500,000 views, you can't just go back to making things no one watches, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I'm, I'm obviously speaking in hyperbole. That absolutely shouldn't matter, but that's how it felt. No, that's valid. That's how so you felt. And I, I mean, I think that's yeah. to be expected. Yeah. And so I racked my brain for like, how can I take my own stories and get that same success? And of course, the answer is you can't. Because, yes, What If and Dawn are, are great independent films that I'm very proud of. But I cannot contribute. I, I, I cannot attribute all of their success to my own talent as an artist. They succeeded because they were content that people knew about. So after What If and Dawn, I made Ink, which is a horror film that I wrote myself. It's my own story. I think it got like 1,100 views on YouTube. I'm, I'm very proud of it. But at the time, that felt like a punch in the gut because it was just like, oh my God, no one cares about what I actually want to say, what I actually want to do. And when you're a person like me, you know, I suffer from chronic anxiety. I have a lot of issues like imposter syndrome. I didn't go to film school. I don't have a lot of money to make these movies. So it was just like, well, why am I even doing this? You know, I'm, I'm 20 at the time. I was 23 turning 24. I felt like, you know, well, if I can't turn this into a career, if I can't make anything of myself, then what am I doing? And I think every artist has to go through that at some point. Mm-hmm. The, the, you, you reach a point where you have to decide why you do what you do. It's a rite of passage. It is. And that was like 2019 and the early part of 2020 for me. It was that time. And then in 2020, I picked up something I started writing in 2017, which became well, the novel that I decided to self-publish. And I just wrote it just for fun. It just became my COVID-19 project. You know, I was, I was isolated for two months. Shelby and I couldn't see each other. I was just at home with my parents, which was very nice. But I, it was just something to do. And truly, writing that novel reminded me why I make art. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't doing it. I, I had no expectations. I didn't care if anybody ever read it. I just wrote it because I liked the story. And I finished writing it. And I was just like, okay, like I can, I can do this just for myself again. And I'm kind of back there now. And I feel really, really good about it. When you make something that blows up, even in a small way, and that's the funny thing, you know, by YouTube standards, 500,000 views is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket, but it felt so big, you know, especially when you're just, you know, at the time when I made what if I was just out of college, I was 19. It was like, okay, this is it. I've done it. You know? And when you think about the reach of that, too, you're a performer. So, yeah. like, you're used to performing and having a whole crowd of people watch you. But when you compare that to 500,000 views, yeah. those are very stark numbers in comparison. Well, and people all over the world, I mean, people in Russia and France, which is where Life is Strange made, you know, and, and uh, we have fans in Germany, we have fans in South America. My favorite thing about it is that there are people that I still talk to today. You know, I have some friends that I talk to all over the world now because of these movies. Mm-hmm. But it felt so big it was scary, I think is how I would put it. And I simultaneously realized two things. I didn't like how it felt to want to make things to be successful. And I had lost the reason why I made things in the first place. So 2020, for as hard as it was, was a reset for me. And it ended with me writing a play 
called The Origin of Matter, which is a retelling of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And a big part of that also is I got a new job, a day job. I work as the director of programming at the Grab Museum, which is a local museum in Waterloo, Iowa. And it allowed me to put my passion and energy into something else that wasn't art. Well, like, it is art, but it's a different kind of art. I'm rambling. But like, it's okay for you. First off, right? it's the like, perfect, you're supposed to ramble. You can ramble <laughs> for as long as you want. And it, I think that's great. It's fantastic. And I think that sometimes we get in our own way. And I feel like by rediscovering that and going through the feelings that you did feel from what if blowing up, it kind of allowed you to evolve as an artist and also kind of realize what is important. The audience and the people who notice your work, if you cultivate that audience from things that you really enjoy doing, the the quality of the people who support you increases. Yes. The sincerity of how much they lend just merit and validity to what you do, it completely elevates. That's really part two of the story, because after Ingrid got like a thousand views, I was super sad. And then I looked at who was watching mm-hmm. and who was commenting and who was talking about it. And it was all, it was this group of kids. And they are, they're, a lot of them are younger than me. Like mm-hmm. 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids who found me through What If and liked it enough that they're still watching what I'm doing. And that is an amazing feeling. And it, frankly, it's a feeling that I probably wouldn't have had if I was still getting hundreds of thousands of views, you know? With with five hundred thousand views, you don't know who's watching it. That's true. But with this, but with this smaller group, it's like I know them. They show up for our live streams. They talk to us on Instagram and YouTube, and I, I know their names. I know what they look like. And there's something so special about that, about making movies just kind of for this amazing little audience that I've built, and that honestly is very near to my heart. Because it's like, okay, like I found my people. I can make movies for these people for the rest of my life. And I'm completely happy with that. I, I, I think we, I mean, I'm going to get like philosophical. Please but do. Like, <laughs> in, you know, in America, especially, where we're kind of taught, we're raised to think that what we do, mm-hmm. what we choose to do with our life, you can't do it if it's not going to make money. Right? Like, you can't, if, if you make movies and you're not, making millions of dollars and casting Hollywood stars and you're a hobbyist. You're not a real thinker. And I think as I got into my early 20s, I, I got a little of that with me, you know, of thinking like, oh, well, I'm just being a kid. Like, if I, if I don't do this seriously, if I don't take this seriously, if I don't try to make thousands of dollars on this and try to get a budget, try to get a crew and all of this stuff to be legitimate, quote-unquote, then I'm not really doing it. And that's just self-hate. That's not reality. That's something that I really want to stress to anybody who's listening to this, because this is, you know, I do it. I mean this in no way as a brag, because it's honestly just a weird thing that still happens. I get these, you know, 17 or 18 year old kids who watch my movies and they message me and they're like, hey, how can I become a filmmaker? All you have to do is just go out there and make something. Don't worry about what other people are going to think. Don't worry about how many people are going to watch it. Don't try to be successful. Just try to be happy. That, that's, all I, that's all I can say. If, if you're doing it, 
because you think it'll make other people like you or because you think it'll make you successful, then you're not doing it for the right reason, then you're going to be unhappy. You have to make art for the love of it. You do. And I think more than anything, it causes you to burn out after a while. Yes. It raises oh, yes. your depression. It raises your anxiety trying to keep up. I, um, and this isn't to take away from what you said. I can sort of relate in a different way. I worked at a studio for over a year where we cultivated different types of media and we put on all of these different shows and we got to the point where we were starting to get noticed and we watched other people around us operating for a lot less of a time just kind of take off and their audiences were just so so enamored and just so supportive of them and we struggled and it became less about creating art like it used to be less about the fun of it and it became more about how do I monetize and the fun was sucked out of it and to the point where I'm like this isn't fun anymore and I promised myself specifically last year if it's not fun if I don't feel fulfilled by it I'm not going to do it because life is short. And I think I've had, I'm a cancer survivor, but I currently have it. And it taught me that we don't have, the one thing we can never get back is time. And taking time out to do the things that you really want to do makes it all worth it in an end. Because maybe it'll take you longer making movies for the smaller audience, making movies for your core audience that followed you from what if, but they love what you do and you're able to cultivate more people that think the way they do and really enjoy your passion and the tone and just the pa- the ideals that you bring to the work that you create. And I just, I think that is so worthwhile. Yeah. I, I think that I, I agree with that completely because that was the big thing. I got writers. I kept trying to think of new ideas and what's going to be successful. And I was like, why can't I come up with anything? And it's like, because I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm, I'm thinking what's going to be successful, what's going to make me better, and not, what do I want to do? I want to make weird horror movies. And like, that's what I'm doing. And, but I'm also like, I also working on a drama, slowly but surely, that's way off. The other thing is I stopped setting deadlines for myself. After I made What If, I was like, okay, I need to make at least one movie every single year. And it's like, you know how quickly that burns you out? The second that you think you have to make your own art on a deadline, I have deadlines at work. Life gives me deadlines. If you set deadlines for your hobby, for just the thing that you enjoy doing, then it becomes work. That's very true. Like, it stops being you know, fun. Yeah, you can't, you can't force it. So, like, I've already announced the next horror film I'm going to make is called Skyquake. And I'm super excited about it. It's a cosmic horror film, which I've never Ooh, done before. That sounds I'm like a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, it is. It's going to believe me. But, like, I was just like, I'm going to announce this project, and then I'm just going to take my time. And if I have other ideas between now and when I make it, that's fine. Like, it's just, you can't rush it. And I also want to say one thing really, really quick, because I know there might be people, what if fans listening to this, who are going to be like, Carson is saying he regrets making what if, or it was a bad experience. And I am 100% not saying that. Making what if is the greatest decision of my life. It led to me meeting my partner, which is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I met so many amazing people. I have no regrets whatsoever. 
if anything, the changes that happened and the trouble that I went through were a result of positive change. You know, it, change is change is scary, but it's not bad. That's true. So I, I just I just want to stress that I'm I'm in no way saying oh it was a mistake or I regret it. I don't. I I love it. I'm proud of it. It's just it did lead me to reevaluate a lot of things. And I think the reevaluation is necessary too. Coming off of writing your your reimagining of Mary Shelley, you ended up writing old wounds over the course of last year. So how did your writing evolve? Having that awareness that you wanted to make things for the fun of it and in the way that you need it to, at the pace that you need it to, what yeah. made old wounds different from the other art that you'd put out previously? Old wounds was different because one, because it's a novel. And I don't consider myself a novelist, you know, any more than I really consider myself a, a filmmaker. I'm an artist. I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. I, I choose whatever format I think is best for the story. I am not a filmmaker. I am not a write. I'm not a novelist. I'm not a playwright. I'm just an artist who tells stories. But I think old, old wounds became very personal, you know. And you've you're actually one of the only people on earth who has actually read the whole book, so you know. I'm resisting Uh the urge to have an entire fan moment about it, so I'm just going to let you talk about it. so I can. You can have big fan moments, I don't care that much. (laughs) um, But, like, it, it became intensely personal, because it became a book about a character who is trying to be better. And... It's funny because I started Old Wounds when I first wrote it. Um, it was originally written as a pseudo sequel to a film that I made called Play Dead. Have you seen Play Dead? That one I haven't seen. Tell me about it. That's, uh, I, I directed it with two other people, two friends of mine. Actually, I wrote and directed it with two friends of mine. Um, and the, character main, the main villain of the story is a character named Adrian, who also goes by the name Azriel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really love that character. And I still want to do something else for that character in the future, but Old Wounds isn't it. Old Wounds became its own thing. Um, but I started writing about that character, and I was like, mm, this isn't what I want to write. And so I, I wrote like 60 pages of a book, and then I sat it aside for like three years. 2017, mm-hmm. I stopped writing it. And then in 2020, I was bored because it was quarantine, and I was like, whatever happened to that novel that I wrote? Or that, that, that beginning of a novel that I wrote? And I picked it up and I read it and I was like, this is terrible <laughs> because it, I wrote it three years ago. Um, and any artist knows the worst thing you can do to yourself is read something or look at something that you made. But I was like, there's, there's something to this. There's a story within this story that I want to tell. So I started from scratch. I rewrote, I rewrote it from the bottom and that character morphed into Lillian. And went from being a kind of American psycho-esque story about a serial killer to what I, what I consider a reverse serial killer origin story. The story that the character starts at a moral low and then tries to get better. And I recognize that, you know, I, I'm a terrible salesperson because I, I talk about this book and I'm like, I really realize this book isn't going to be what a lot of people want it to be. It's not a dark story about a character that gets worse and worse and morally has to make these terrible decisions. It's a redemption story, essentially. 
it's a story about a character who is literally a serial killer and who decides for multiple reasons that she doesn't want to be bad anymore. And it's the exact opposite kind of story that I normally write. <laughs> but I'm immensely proud of it. And it's still very, very dark. I mean, it, it's still not a happy story by any stretch of the imagination. But it became less of a horror story and more of a story about humanity. I feel like it's the story that people may need. Because even though you have a certain style that people who, who love your work have gotten accustomed to, the cool thing about it and the cool thing that I like about you and I think what attracted me to your work as a whole because I was one of those people that saw What If and connected with you through seeing that film is I feel like you are very the way you explore the darker parts of the human condition the darker parts of the psyche was just very refreshing to me and not not being afraid to go there or to tell a different side of it or even tell stories that aren't necessarily all that happy without giving anything away because all of you should go and get it. It's amazing. Speaking as someone who has read it, one of my favorite things about the novel is the fact that while you see someone who is trying to become better, you really see what their experiences, their choices that they've made have done to them as a person, how it's yeah. caused so much trauma and so much anxiety and so much depression. And they are genuinely warring with themselves as well as an external force, the entirety of the novel. And I think that's what makes it beautiful. And it is an angering and disturbing and delectably evil and just wonderful experience i thoroughly enjoyed every iteration of that novel and felt more feelings than i felt reading a novel in a very very long time all of your pieces always leave me feeling philosophical and the novel was no different i remember like i read it once and then i binge read it in two days again like after I finished it because I just wanted to experience it again. And honestly, my thoughts and feelings have evolved from reading it the first time and the second time. Still like in the same vein of what I said about it, but I just, I'm very impressed with how you, with how you're able to blend together narrative, just the character's thoughts, dialogue, and also just engage the reader i feel like sometimes when you're writing a novel it's really easy to get lost in feeling like you have to describe everything or you have to quantify everything and i just like the way you you leave a little bit of mystery which i enjoy a lot it's so funny because um first of all i have to give a lot of credit to jacqueline keogh who is my editor and also a very good friend of mine mm -hmm. um she is an incredibly accomplished author in her own right she actually has written articles that have gotten published in national geographic oh that's really she's cool writer. she's amazing um but she was my editor for the book and one of the biggest things that she would do is she would go through uh my my text and she would find places where i said like lillian said or charlie said or things like that and she'd be like what is happening here? what is this character doing what are they thinking 
And because of that, I think it, it lended a lot to that blend mm-hmm. of, of, of narrative. And it's funny because I, I appreciate that you said that one of your favorite things about it is the way that it kind of jumps from like character thought to what's going on. To I, I, That's been both a compliment and a critique. But for me, Lillian's thought process, Lillian is a character that lives fiercely in the moment. Mm-hmm. She, she is a, she is an animal of, of now. You know, she is aware, she is constantly on the lookout. But on the other hand, she's a character that is constantly dragged in her past by her trauma. To me, that was actually kind of something important. Yeah, I really didn't want to dwell too much on the day-to-day details of her life. Mm-hmm. Because that's not what I find important about her. She is a character that is rocketing through this horrifying experience. You know, any person who has been through trauma knows that there is nothing worse than a situation that even vaguely reminds you of terrible things that happened in your past. And this book, especially when you get into the second half of it, is all about a situation that drags her into her past. And so the pace just rockets, because that's, that's what it feels like when you're going through a traumatic event. It doesn't happen. I, I always love when people say time slowed down. Time doesn't slow down. Time speeds up. Everything happens all at once. And for a character like Lillian, who is so intensely censored, you know, everything, like, one thing that Shelby said about the book, which I, I thought was interesting, is that I write about, apparently I write about color a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I always mention what color things are, what things you do. like. And I think that that's something that's important to Lillian. Again, she she has these kind of predatory qualities because she's a killer, but also because that's what survivors have. You know, survivors of trauma see the world through the lens of threat. And it's a good way to put it. Is the lens that I wrote this book, Lillian can only experience so much. She's she's hobbled to an extent by her trauma. So, you know, we don't get to see the time that she stopped at a roadside stand for ice cream because that's not what she thinks about. You know, mm-hmm. it's the next kill. It's the next person. It's the next place she's going to go to cool down. And I think when she meets Steve, who, by the way, is based on a real person, a wonderful man who passed away, that changes her because he shows her kindness. I have had my own traumas in life and I have gone through my own things, but I really didn't pull from my own experiences for a little I don't really write about myself. I like to write about, I like to use my experiences to color the way that I write about other things. Would you say but, that you allow characters to organically be what they want to be in that case? Yes. Yeah. Lillian is her own person. I, I don't outline when I write. I don't storyboard. I don't outline. I don't pre-plan. The stories happen as they happen and I write down what I see. I am so, so impressed that you don't storyboard. You told me this before, and I was just very impressed that you just organically were able to do all of that. I, I just I just see it. I mean, when I write a movie, I, I know how I want it to look, and I recreate that. When I write a book or a, or a play, I, I just I watch it, and I write it down. And it's not, you know, it, it, it helps and it hurts. I know I could probably be a better writer if I storyboarded, but I would enjoy that. And again, I'm not really doing this for commercial success. I'm doing this because I love it. And I wrote Old Moon as I saw 
I wrote Lily in the story as it occurred, for better or for worse. So you have Lillian, who is one of the main protagonists, and she's a redemption character. But then you have the antagonist of the story, which, by God, I'm so excited. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about him the whole time. Mr. Faraday, <laughs> the villain of the story, is my favorite villain that I have ever written. And I think it's going to take a long time before I write a villain that I like. He is... Okay, so here's a fun fact. Uh, a Night Stalker documentary just came out on Netflix recently. Mm-hmm. It's a great um, I actually studied a lot of real-world serial killers before I wrote Fairy Day, which is funny because Mr. Fairy Day is a supernatural character. Mm-hmm. He's not human. He is an entity. But it was very important to me. I'm going to try to say all this without giving too much away because Mr. Fairy Day is in very little of the book, and that's deliberate because... He's not a character that I think anyone would want to spend too much time with. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts about Mary Day? Because <laughs> I, I, I want to hear, like, how, if you had to describe to someone who didn't write the book what the villain of this book is like, <laughs> I, I'm curious of your thoughts. Because I feel like I'm going to give away the game. And this is my refined opinion on him. He's evil and cruel, but at the same time, you want to read every page that he's on and even beyond that because Lillian's fantastic to read about even in the moments where it's very emotionally charged which is most of the book but at the same time I think Mr. Faraday for me is he's not an agent of chaos he is a chaotic observer who loves to incite, but do so from a mental standpoint that just completely breaks down who a person is. He wants you to feel it. He wants the people connected to you and around you to feel wrath. Because I am the kind of person that I am, I had a very hard time writing Perry. Because every time I would write him, it would be very safe and very watered down. And then I'd be like, no, like... If I'm going to write this character, I have to write him as he is. And while he is refined, he is also an absolutely vile character at times. He was definitely treading a fine line. He, it was, he was a, a character where I constantly had to ask myself, is this too much? Should I do more? Because of the nature of what he is and what he does. I, it's funny, because I actually based him very heavily on actual mythology. Um, the, the name Fairy Day, the, if, you ever, if you ever read mythology about fairies and like mm-hmm. the fae folk, they're not beautiful little Disneyland fairies. They were evil, mischievous creatures. Mm-hmm. And there's this particular mythological creature, yeah, Mogwai are what Fairy Day essentially is. They are small creatures that encompass kind of a larger form. And all they want to do is just ruin your life. And I wanted to write a supernatural character with very human. And I wanted Fairy Day to feel very grounded. He's not in very much of the book. And so I just feel like if I reference too many things, I'm going to ruin it. I have never been prouder of an antagonist. I I think he serves his purpose in the story so well. And I think you're really going to wish there was more of him than there is. (laughs) But... There are moments where I did, and then, like you said, vile is a good word, and so is abhorrent. Like, he is, he is so disgustingly gritty, and just devoid of respect, that 
it's almost it's almost just enough that he's in the story simultaneously while you want more and i think it's because he's an intriguing character because he has moments where he is still absolutely fucking awful but at the same time there is something that's a little bit more like there's depth to his character so he's not he's not a one note kind of character he has no tragic backstory you know he's but, but I think the, the scariest thing about Fairy Day is that he is not the kind of villain who, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing this for the greater good, or I'm doing this. That he has no, he is simultaneously fully aware that what he is doing is wrong, and just fine with that. Your your abuser becomes larger than life. You know, they be, they become the 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 farther away you get from them, they take on this almost supernatural, monstrous persona in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't really remember them. You remember how they affected you. And I wanted Fairy Day to be the literal embodiment of that. You know, it, he is every bit as bad as Lillian remembers. He is this supernatural, powerful entity. And it's a bit of a metaphor. They take on this horrifying, larger-than-life persona, but also, they're kind of pathetic. And Fairy Day is kind of that, you know, he, he's this lowly, crawling monster. On one hand, he's terrifying, but on the other hand, he's nothing. And I think a big part of the reason I didn't put him in more of the book than I did is that it's not about him. It's about Lily. And I think an, an easy mistake that a lot of horror authors make is they get so close to making some kind of poignant statement. But then it's monster, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to hold back from that. I, I wanted Fairy Day to be more of an existential threat than a literal one. I feel like you do a really good job at it, too. And something, to me, like, some of the bigger film, like, I'm going to use books and movies as examples. But using Gollum from Lord of the Rings as an example, or using the monsters in a quiet place as an example, completely different stories. But what what makes those pieces of work good stories, essentially, is like in the quiet place, you have monsters in it, but it focuses on a family and you form a bond with that family. In Lord of the Rings, you have a creature who's gone through quite a bit of trauma and essentially is a villain. But it doesn't focus on him that much. It focuses on the other central characters in the story. And you use a very similar technique in your book. The fact that it does center on Lillian, I think, tethers us to the book a little bit more. Because something that I've noticed with a lot of horror authors or people who write horror novels is that they are so fixated on, I've got to be the scary, I've got to scare everybody. I've got to make them terrified as they're reading this book. And a book can be scary and a book can terrify you and keep you up at night. But is it memorable? Are you going to remember that experience and how that book made you feel a year from now? If the answer is no, then it gets lost in the noise of a bunch of other books that are iterations of it. And I, and I really like the way you were able to create something that was different. Yes, there's a redemption arc in it, 
but what was the manner in which you portrayed that? And that's what makes your story different from the the standard, the general redemption arc. Yeah, and that, that was a big thing with, with Lillian, is that, and again, I don't want to give away too much, but I, I guess I should use the word redemption arc with an asterisk, because you're right, it's not like, oh, and then at the end, you know, it's she's a great person and everyone's okay. It's not about that. It's more about redeeming yourself to yourself. And I think that that is something that a lot of people struggle with. You know, you, you can convince everyone else all day long that you're a good person. But can you convince yourself that you're a good person? And I think that that is the central quandary. Can Lillian look at herself in the mirror and say she's a good person? A creature like Fairy Day, kind of pulling the strings here and there, that becomes the issue. I definitely made that connection. And for me, I wondered something, especially after the second time that I read it, being that 2020 was such a heavy year. And you added context to it by kind of stating that your artistry changed quite a bit going into that year in terms of how you look at it and you doing things for you. So even though Lillian is in a parallel of you, was that book healing for you to write? And what did it do for you psychologically during that process? It really was. Um, because I expected it to be a very different book. Again, because I, I don't storyboard. I don't, I don't plan. So I had a general idea of how I thought it was going to end. And I got to the point where I thought everything was going to happen a certain way which is the way it always goes in my stories. You know, I, I got to this point and I was like, okay, and then this is going to happen and everything's going to go to hell. The end. And I was faced with the realization that it didn't have to be that way. And that there was a more challenging story. To, and I think that was a huge change for me. Was realizing that, like, the fundamental humanity of what I was trying to write you know, getting away from the blood and the guts and the monster and all the things that are fun about, about writing horror. <laughs> even though it is, even though it is a very dark story, it has a heart that I think it would have lacked if I had written it before. There's a lot of evolution in the novel that you can feel, and you can feel it with the pacing of the story, um, the way the character progresses, and also the light in which you're telling that character's story or that character is telling its story because it felt very organic as I was reading it. So what did the story leave you with? You bled all of these metaphors and allegories into your story to kind of cultivate a message, but what did your story leave you with once you were done finally writing it? I would say it left me with a desire to focus more on human going, yeah. Cutting off of Ingrid, I can I can spoil a bit more about Ingrid because it's been out for a while and it's on YouTube. And anyone can watch it. Ingrid was a story about a person becoming a monster. You know, it, it's a, it's a progression of a fairly normal person to a shell of a human being, and a lot of horror movies are about that. The Shining. Um, Others, 
But no, like, um, but like, you know, it, it's the classic story. Person becomes monster, you know? Werewolf stories, vampire stories, uh, possession stories. It's always normal, sweet, good person becomes bad. And I wanted to tell uh, a muddier story that I think is a lot closer to real, which is flawed person becomes maybe a little less flawed. You know, it, it's or flawed person realizes that they are not just their flaws. Mm-hmm. Lillian is still Lillian at the end of the story. And I think that was something that I really wanted to focus on. You know, she doesn't convert to pacifism and decide <laughs> to and, and never revert to her old ways. It's more about how she feels about herself. Uh, I guess we should also say, because I've mentioned multiple times that Lillian is a serial killer, and people listening to this should know, she doesn't just kill random people. Lillian is like a vigilante. She kills, like, predators and, like, bad Um, But in doing that, she also corrupts herself, because she's taking lives. And so that's kind of her. her. Um, But she's also not Dexter. She doesn't doesn't quite have a a coat like he does, I don't think. She... Um, and I left the story feeling more so like there was a sense of awareness. Uh-huh. And I I like that a lot. I Stories where people do an entire 180, while they're fine and executed right, they, it could be realistic. But I feel like it's much more human to kind of present a person in that way. And this is probably going off on a tangent, but... As I read it, it kind of, because obviously I, you wrote it in 2020, I was given it to read in 2020. It made me, the second time I read it specifically, kind of think about the people in this world. Like, being a bit personal for a second, I do a lot of advocacy and activist work. So throughout the course of the year... Being a person of color, I've had to explain to a lot of non-people of color why certain things are not okay. And I've had to educate people, even though I'm angry on the inside about the state of the world. And relating it back to your story, the point that I'm getting at is I spoke to individuals who had really disturbing views on people of different races, people who were different from them in some facet, whether they were part of the LGBT plus community or a part of a marginalized community of some kind. And you plant a seed, essentially. They're not going to do a 180 because you have a conversation with them that they were willing to have with you. Um, And I feel like much like those individuals in everyday human life, Lillian, who is also a human in the book, um, is a character who goes through a set of things and gains a sense of knowledge and experience that helps helps her see herself a little bit better in her place in the world and provides options and other perspectives that may have not been there previously and i think that that is a very relevant thing in the state of the, in the world that we live in whether it was in 2020 
or before 2020, that story, and even after 2020, it's, it's a very needed type of story because there are variations of depth to it. Lillian is bad by choice, and she realizes she doesn't have to be. And again, this, this really isn't much of a spoiler. This happens very early on in the story. Um, and I'm not saying how much it works and what her arc is, but a character like Fairy Day is bad because he can't. And I think that that is the fundamental difference between the two characters, and those are the two kinds of evil that I wanted to represent. Because I think we've all seen that, especially in 2020. There are people that are bad because they are misled, and because they're hurt, and because they're struggling, and there are people that hurt people just because they can. And I think it's important to know the difference and to have room for empathy. You know, we're, we're, we're all human beings who are struggling and confused and scared. And certainly I'm not saying we should be, you know, nicer to people than actively want to hurt other people. But I do think understanding the fundamental humanity of even the worst people can lead to you having a little bit easier time sleeping at night. I you agree know? with that. It it helps you, you have better conversations, and I feel like once you do that, you instinctively start to treat people better. And it bleeds through in the work that you do for artists, it bleeds through in the art that they create. And people who work in the corporate world, they're just better to people, and that's kind of a chain reaction. So in that vein of how a change of thought or a change in how you approach something can alter a person, what do you personally want to give to the world through what you create, whether it's your work at the museum, whether it's books that you write, movies that you create, or any iteration of art? Two very different things. Through the museum, which is my, my career, and what I very much hope to do for the rest of my life, universe willing, through that I want to educate. And I want to work with the community and with kids and with people who don't necessarily have all the privileges that I do. And I want to make learning and community fun. Yeah, like that's, that's my goal there. My, my goal is to make as many people's lives better as I can. Through my art, my, my movies, my books, other things that I do. Because to be perfectly honest, there are times where I just write a story to write a story, mm -hmm. and people get from it what they get. That's not to say, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that, oh, there's no point, but there, there's, a, there's a line from a movie that you haven't seen, which is Play Dead, mm -hmm. um, and it's one of my favorite scenes that I wrote, and I don't want to take too much credit because I wrote this movie with two other people, but I do know that this is a line that I wrote at the end of the movie. There's a, con there's, a, there's a conflict between the main antagonist and the main protagonist. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, the, the, the villain is a serial killer, a very different kind of person, than the, more of a fairy day than a lily. Mm -hmm. And she asks this character, why? why? Why do you do this? What's the point? And the villain replies, the point is that there is no point. And I actually really like I that. Think, 
I think, honestly, as stupid as it sounds, that's kind of something I do come back to in my art, is that the point of old wounds, the point of Ingrid, the point of all the stories, even the Life is Strange, because you know full well, you 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 were familiar with the games. I changed a lot mm-hmm. in, in my Life is Strange, especially in Dawn. Mm-hmm. I'm not concerned with the moment. I'm not concerned with the message. I'm not concerned with the big picture. And, oh, here's what I want you to get from my art. It's about the little thing. It's about the small moments of humanity. I don't really want people to take one big thing away from any of my stories. I want people to experience something and to go on whatever little roller coaster I built for them. And whatever they take from it, good or bad, great. No, I like that because when you when you think about it that way, it it takes the self-serving part out of creating. And it's there's nothing wrong with creating something in pursuit of of showing the audience a specific theme or providing a particular type of moral. But I read something that honestly was a point of contention in the setting that I read it in. I was in oh. I was in lit class. I cannot remember for the life of me who said it. But um it was somebody, it was one philosopher of some kind was like wanting people to see the morals in your story is pretentious. Let them see the morals if they want to, but really you just you the basically what they were saying is you focusing in on the theme or the moral is really just you wanting people to be moved by your work and you lose touch of all of the entities that went into making that a unified piece. And I happen to be of the, I happen to be of the mind that agrees with that. Um, I feel like growing up in grade school, they kind of teach you that you have to search for that. Because, like, one of the questions on the worksheet that you do is, what's the moral of this story? What's the theme? What do they, what does the author want you to know? Um, And sometimes, while that isn't irrelevant, because I don't want to take away from that, it is not the core of what you need from the story. The little moments are, they connect you to the story. If you can relate to different iterations of what someone does in a story. I feel like I use the word iterations a lot. I am realizing that right now, which is not related to what we're talking about. I've read my own novel enough to know that I reuse the same five words every other page. So, like, it's hell, honestly. (laughs) But, like, yeah. But, no, I, I like that a lot. Carson, tell everybody where they can find out more about your work, what you do. Because I am, I am tiny, um, if you just search Old Wounds on Google, it's not going to get you anywhere. Um, it is available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, you can also go to my website, which is Carson T. Morrissey, C-A-R-R-S-A-N-T-M-O-R-R-I-S-S-E-Y. My name is a hellscape of double letters. <laughs> um, uh, it is available right there for pre-order. Uh, look up my name because my first name is spelled so weirdly. If you just Google Carson on, or if you look it up on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, yeah, the book comes out on May fifth. Uh, it can be shipped anywhere in the world. Um, I am also slowly putting together plans for an audiobook, but that is a plan in and of itself. So that's a little bit off in the future. Please 
buy it. I mean, I'm I'm really proud of it. Also, the cover art is gorgeous. So if you can, uh, it's funny. I tell everyone to buy the paperback. The paperback is more expensive than the ebook, and everyone's like, "Oh, you're just trying to make more money." I actually make like half the money on the paperback that I do on the ebook. But the art is so pretty. The so art is super pretty. It. It's worth getting the paperback to support the artist. Um, she is an artist from Denmark that I met through Facebook. Uh, her name is Tina Erickson. She's amazing. I've actually um, heard of her. Yeah, yeah she's I like have. apparently kind of a big deal in Denmark. I only know her because I'm Facebook friends with her, but she's amazing. Um, I follow way too many artists. That's really what I this know, is. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah. Please check it out. Um, also, I make movies. Uh, YouTube.com slash Productions, all one word, word city, the letter M, the word production, all one word. You can find all my movies there. I've got new stuff. Hopefully someday COVID ends coming out. I'm excited for all the work that you'll create going forward. And Carson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You are always eternally welcome on the podcast. I did think of one more thing. One okay. more thing that I wanted to Let's talk about it. Uh, you asked me what a big recurring theme is in my story, and I said the point is that there is no point, which is a very pretentious, pretty sounding thing. Most, if not all, of my stories focus on women and queer people, um, because I like to write about people who don't normally get to see themselves in stories like this. Um, every gay character or queer character or female character in a lot of horror movies is a stereotype, um, and so that's something that I really try to avoid. But I guess if there's one thing that I like a, a moral or like a theme that I try to go for, you know, I myself am an agender person and I I really try to write my characters as the type of people who don't normally get represented in these kinds of stories. Because I think we've gotten so used to only seeing gay characters or queer characters in stories who are, that are about the queer experience. I don't think that's entirely fair. It's not. So that that's definitely a big thing for me. Is like, why can't we just have stories that just happen to feature queer people? And it doesn't need to be a big thing. Because you said something earlier about you're never going to convince like a bigoted person by just screaming in their face, hey, you should not be terrible. But if you can get them to read a story or watch a movie, about a person who they would normally not take a second glance at, and you can get them to empathize with that person and understand them, maybe they'll start to see the world through a little bit wider lens. That's very if true. there's one moral or goal that I have to get people to see the world through a little bit wider lens. I like that. And I, I visibly see that through all of your work and I think it's as as a person in the LGBT plus community as as a woman if you will um I don't I don't like to see characters that are obligatory characters I like characters that are organic and the reality is is like it shouldn't matter who I am or how I identify or who anyone else is or how they identify they're people and humans first. So being able to see different different shades of what that means is a much needed thing. And to do it in the vein of we all know what it's like to experience anger, sadness, happiness, joy, love, confusion, fear, all of those things. It 
it just further makes us realize that we are all connected and that we feel the same types of emotions, even if they're about completely different things. Thank you, Carson, for coming on the show and for... It's always lovely talking to you. And again, everybody check out City in Productions. Check out Old Wounds. It's amazing. And before we sign off tonight, Carson had a surprise for everybody. Carson is going to do a dramatic reading of Old Wounds, just a small little nice excerpt of the story to give you all a little taste of what is in store. Enjoy. All Ross Titman could hear was the roar of his own blood rushing through his veins. He barely even let out a scream as he was brutalized. It all happened so quickly, and the shock came over him fast enough to mercifully numb him to the worst of the physical pain. Finally, after a dozen blows with the knife, Lillian stopped, dripping with sweat and Ross's blood, panting heavily. Ross was still alive. Lillian had made sure of that. His breath came in long, labored, syrupy gasps. He turned his head and vomited a gout of blood onto the pavement. Lillian stared down at Ross like a hawk at a rat, high above him, unblinking and ravenous. Look at me, Ross, she whispered. Ross slowly brought his head up and looked at Lillian with his one remaining eye. His other eye had been slashed early on in the assault. He tried to say something, but it was only gibberish now. Several of his teeth had been knocked out by the force of the blows to his face, and he found that he couldn't make his voice work right. He was sobbing pitifully, partly from the pain, but more so from fear. Even in this current state, his suffering absolute, he didn't want to die. Do you see me? Lillian asked, her eyes dinner plate wide and unblinking. Are you looking? Ross shook his head like a child. No, no. Please, no more, he managed to mutter. Are you sorry for what you did? Lillian asked, holding the knife near Ross's face so he could see it. Are you? Ross looked up at the instrument of his death with one strained, tear-filled eye. He had no strength to act on his urge to grab it, to shove this demon off of him and snuff it out before it could do this to anyone else. Ross thought of his son, Jonathan, who was not yet fifteen and already had his father's temper, who'd already known the taste of alcohol. He wished he could tell Jonathan to cool his head, to think before he acted, to read and learn and go to school and make something of himself, to find a woman that would love him and keep him warm at night, and to treat her better than Ross had treated his mother to be a better man than his father had been. Ross thought of his ex-wife, Annabelle. He missed her, though there was little love left between them now. They'd been high school sweethearts, and he'd loved her dearly, though he hadn't known how to show it. He'd always intended to tell her he was sorry. Sorry for his temper. Sorry for the drinking. Sorry for the fights, and the broken vases, and the black eyes, and the fear. Mostly for the fear. Sorry for being the mean bastard he'd been. Sorry for turning their son into a monster, just like his daddy. Yes, Ross managed to say. I... sorry. Ross saw the devil, his final judgment, death's own emissary, all red snake hair and green emerald eyes and gold fire teeth, its skin covered in his blood, glaring down at him with a face that said, I know what you are and I hate you for it. I'm glad, she said. 
Ross thought of death and damnation. He barely noticed as Lillian dragged the blade across his throat. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. As always, you are the most beloved and make all of this possible, time after time. The Raindrop Corner podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all standard platforms where you can listen to podcasts. Until next time.